Wow. I feel like we've been to church. <laughs> Let's just pray and thank God for the last few moments. Can we do that? Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your presence among us. We thank you for your healing hand on the move once more. We thank you for the guidance and the direction that you're giving right now. Lord, you're making yourself known. You're revealing who you are. You're revealing what you do. And you've been doing that as we have been lifting our voices, lifting our hands, singing to you. Lord, you have been on the move, and we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we, we just admit we need your Holy Spirit to help us. So Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be our teacher over these next few minutes. Lord, we love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. Pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said... Luke 18 is where we're going to be. Jared read the text for us just a little earlier. Look at verses 35 through 43. This week I've been thinking about a story from several years ago. And, uh, truth is, as an 18-year-old intern, I should have known better. You know, because at 18 you're supposed to know it all, Right? Even though I should have known better, the prospect of taking my boss's keys and driving out in his Jeep onto some freshly soaked mud beside the church, it was just way too tempting, let me tell you. Uh, it was a Wednesday night service. Uh, it was about to start. The students were coming in from a busy day at school. The volunteers and chaperones, they were busy getting everything together, doing all the last-minute details. And that's when Daniel and I realized that my boss, the student minister, had left his keys in his Jeep. And, you know, this was not one of my finest moments, uh, but it sure was fun. It was fun for just a little bit, or it was fun until that split second when we realized this Jeep's not moving forward anymore. We opened the doors and we looked out at the back tires as I kept hitting the gas, and mud was slinging everywhere, all over the Jeep, and it was even making itself all over the side of the church in the two stained glass windows that were there. Uh, again, this is not one of my finest moments. Uh, so we knew we were stuck. So we did what godly young men do. We got out uh, after we turned it off, of course, and uh, made our way carefully back to worship. And we walked in. I wish I could tell you that we, you know, admitted our mistake right then. We didn't. We actually just walked through the doors and acted like nothing had happened. And uh, so we sat through 30 minutes of agonizing worship and then, and then and the, the student minister got up and preached a very convicting message. And then there was this altar call at the end. And let me tell you, me and my friend, we repented like we'd never repented before. <laughs> and then after it was over, we, we broke the bad news. And uh, another truck was commandeered to pull the Jeep out. Daniel and I asked if we could help. And uh, 
we were simply told we had done enough damage for one day. <laughs> I mean, those ruts were so deep, I think they're still there to this day. And I was thinking about that story because I, th- I think we all know what it's like to feel stuck, don't we? We know what it's like to feel stuck. Some of us know what it's like to actually be stuck. And those are two different things, two different things. It's one thing to feel stuck. It's another thing to actually be stuck. And one of the truths that we see in our text today is that we may feel stuck, but with Christ, we do not have to live stuck where we are. As Luke is going along telling his story of Jesus' life, we move from last week there being a rich man to this week there being a blind man. And I do not believe that this flow is by accident. We see the rich man who has this encounter with Christ. And in this encounter, though, he uh, makes a choice. And that choice is for him to continue to trust in himself, continue to trust in what he can do for himself. This is the opposite of what the blind man does today in Luke 18. The scene happens in the ancient city of Jericho. And Jericho is probably most famous for the walls coming down when the trumpets blasted at God's command. We read about it in Joshua chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets, and it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one of them straight before them, go up into the city that you have now conquered. Now, While the seven priests carrying seven trumpets on the seventh day marched around Jericho seven times and made this long trumpet blast and they all shouted and the walls came down, seven things happen in our text today in Jericho again. In our story, there may not be physical walls coming down, but there certainly are spiritual walls coming down. And I want to look at the seven actions taken by this blind man. He does seven things. There are seven movements that he does, and then we see the result. The first thing we see is simply in verse 35. It says, And as he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. The first thing that this blind man did was he sat. We encounter him already sitting on the road, and he's doing what beggars do. He is begging for money. And this is probably a familiar place for him. He probably knew the streets well. He probably knew the passers-by well. And although he could not see, I imagine that he had learned their voices. He he knew the voices of those who seemed to hurry by each day. He probably knew the voices of those who seemed to take their time and stroll by each day. He knew the voices of the people who would be kind to him. He probably knew the voices of the people who would be generous to him. He probably also knew the voices of the people who he knew not to ask them for money. He was probably accustomed to sitting there day after day. I I would imagine that he sat there so long 
that he could probably hear the jingling of a money pouch down the street, and he could probably get close to telling you just how much money was in there. you got to realize this was his life. This is what he knew. And when we do something over and over for a long period of time, we, we get kind of good at it. I'm sure he was good at begging. But the text does reveal to us that this man had not always been sitting there. That this had not always been his life. In fact, in a few verses, he's going to ask Jesus for something. And when he asks Jesus for something, he's going to ask to recover something. Which means he once had it. So what we do know about this man, while he probably was an expert in begging, been doing it for a long time, he had not always been there. But on this day, he sat there. In the second movement, not only did he sit, also he heard. He heard something. He heard something in the crowd. He had heard crowds before, sure. But this crowd sounded different to him. While he had heard many crowds come by for many different reasons, now there's a crowd coming by and they're talking about somebody. They sounded different. They're talking about someone different. There's a a difference in the air. There's a difference in their tone of voice. The crowd was not angry. He'd probably been used to mobs, but this wasn't an angry mob. Instead, there was excitement in the air. He heard something that began to make him think, what if? Or or maybe he began to think sentences like, I wonder. What if? I wonder. What we do know is that this man wanted to know what everybody was ecstatic about. We do know that. The first movement is he sat. The second movement is he heard. But the third movement is he inquired. He could have just sat there and said, well, I wonder what that is. Or just sat there and said, you know, well, if God wants me to know what's going on, then God will tell me what's going on. He could have just sat there and said, I'm not sure what all that is. I sure would like to know, but there's nothing I can do about it. No, he inquired. So after sitting and after hearing, he starts to ask some questions. And maybe he tried to catch someone who was going by. Maybe he recognized a voice and tried to catch somebody that was familiar. Or maybe he just started asking random people. But the excitement that was in the crowd was electrifying. And he wanted to know what was taking place. And he got an answer. Multiple people told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now to some people, they may not have known what this meant. Probably few at this point as Jesus' fame was spreading. But, you know, Jericho was a long way from Nazareth, 91 miles to be exact. And word had been spreading about who this Jesus was. And all of a sudden, this man, when he hears this name, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who's been performing miracles, the one who people say can walk on water, the one who likes to show up at weddings and make them better. The one who likes to take a kid's Lunchable and feed a whole lot of people with it. When he hears that this is the man who's passing by, something happens inside this man. 
Something happens. All of a sudden, he realizes that he had been sitting in that place begging for money for far too long. All of a sudden, he began to remember what it was like to see. And you know, when you begin to inquire about God, new possibilities begin to emerge in your mind about what God can actually do. So we see him and he sat, he heard, he inquired. And after inquiring, the fourth thing he does is he cried out. He begins to raise his voice in the middle of this crowd, and he cries out. But notice that as he cries out, he cries out with a very specific request to a very specific person. As he's crying out, he cries out to Jesus, means Yeshua, God saves, and he calls him the son of David. The son of David. And right there, when that one line comes out of his mouth, that there is Jesus, the son of David, that one line made him the best theologian in Jericho. Because he understands the connection, it seems like, between those two. He understands that Jesus, God saves, that's what his name literally means, is the true, real son of David. The one who was promised, the Messiah that has now come. And so he calls out not just to Jesus of Nazareth, that's what they told him, but he calls him son of David. So while he's calling out to a specific person, he also makes a specific request. And the request is for this thing called mercy. Now, we do not know how long the man had been blind. We do not know what was the cause of his Blindness. We do not know that, but we do know he asked for mercy. And if we're going to define mercy as God not giving us something we do deserve, then it could be safe to make the assumption and say what this man is calling out for is he's admitting, yes, God, I may deserve where I'm at, but would you have mercy? I think we've all been there before. Just like 18-year-old intern Chris, we've all could say at some point or another, maybe we're living in it right now, that yes, I realize where I am, I realize where I am is not good, and I realize that I'm the cause of where I am. I realize that something has happened, and I've been a part of that, but God, would you have mercy on me? And then the interesting thing is, is the crowd reacts in a very negative way. They begin to rebuke the man. Maybe they know something about the man we don't. Maybe they know the cause of the blindness that we don't. But they begin to rebuke the man, and as they are rebuking the man, he just cries out all the more because he knows that if anybody can help him, it is this Jesus, the one who is the son of David, the Messiah who has now come. And he has this holy desperation, and he's shouting and shouting and shouting. The more they tell him to be quiet, the more he shouts. And I think he's shouting because he realizes this may be his only chance to ever talk to him. This may be his last chance to have an encounter with the one who he believes is Jesus, son of David. Jesus hears the commotion, and then Jesus gives a summons. And notice Jesus' response to this man crying out to him. Two things he did in particular. Number one, when Jesus hears the commotion, the text says that Jesus stopped. He stopped. The one who set the stars in motion stopped 
for this man. I think he does the same for me and you. I think when we get to that point and we're crying out with a holy desperation, I think the one who's running the universe stops, even for us. The second thing he did was he said that the man should be brought to him. He gives this command that the man should be brought to him. He could have just said, somewhat, uh, uh, Peter, go figure out what he's talking about. He could have sent all of his disciples to go figure it out. They'd have messed it up, but he could have done it. No, instead, he stops. He makes sure he knows who is this, he knows who the man is who's crying out, Jesus, son of David. And he says, Bring him to me. I want to hear what he has to say. I think he does the same for us. I think when we get to that point in our life, when we are crying out in desperation, Jesus stops and he wants to hear what we have to say. The blind man sat, he heard, he inquired, he cried out. And then he had a choice to make. Some people went over to try to help him come to Jesus. And the fifth thing he did was he came near. He let them help him make his way to Jesus. Once all the commotion had stopped, once the crowd fell silent, because now someone has Jesus' attention, the man, with the help of others, put one foot in front of the other, and he made his way to Jesus. And when he gets there, Jesus asked him an interesting question. This is like the blank check question. When he gets there, Jesus looks at him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) What if Jesus is asking you that question today? What if he is? What do you want me to do for you? Now, this man could have answered back, in a very trivial, temporal way. The man is a beggar. Do you know what beggars do? They what? Beg. Good, that was an IQ test. (laughs) Beggars beg, and, and what do beggars beg for? Money. He could have said, Jesus, what do I want you to do for me? I'm a beggar. This is who I am. I beg, and I beg for money. Would you give me one million shekels? He could have said that. How many times do we say that? If I just had a million dollars, if I just had 10 million, you know, we say things like that. But this man, his response back was not trivial or temporal, not something that can just be taken away one day. Instead, He gives a life-giving answer about sight. Jesus has already taught us in Matthew 6, 22 and 23 that the eye is the lamp of the body, and when it's healthy, it fills the whole body with light. But when it's unhealthy, the whole body is filled with darkness, this very real physical reality revealing something that is true spiritually. Jesus asked him a question once he came near. And now the man answered back. That's the sixth thing he did. He answered. The answer to Jesus' question was simple and clear. He knew exactly what he wanted. He wanted to recover what he had lost, and the thing he had lost was his sight. 
the man wanted to see again. He wanted to see colors. He wanted to have to walk out at noon and squint his eyes because the sun was so bright. He wanted to walk out at night and look up and see the moon and the stars. He wanted to see the faces of his family. He wanted to see the faces of his friends. He wanted to be able to see so he could work and earn an honest wage. I'm sure he wanted all these things, but I think there is another thing he wanted to see. Out of all of that, and as beautiful and amazing as all of that is, I think there's something else he wanted to see. You see, he had this thing called faith. And he had a particular kind of faith. It wasn't faith in general. It wasn't faith in himself. It was faith in this one who is Jesus, son of David. He had faith in this person from Nazareth called Jesus, this teacher, this rabbi, and he believed that this Jesus was no ordinary Jesus, that this Jesus was the real, actual, authentic son of David. And so Jesus' response back to him was, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I think he wanted to see something particular. And I think we get a glimpse of what this man really wanted to see in the life of Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer, blind from a young age. She said this, if at birth I had been able to make one petition of my creator, it would have been that I should be made blind because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. I think the man wanted his sight for many reasons. I think the ultimate reason was he wanted to see Jesus, son of David. He sat, he heard, he inquired, he cried out, he came near, he answered, and then he followed. And in the following, he reveals his true intentions. He reveals his motives. The man wanted to see his Savior, and he wanted to see so that he could follow his Savior. Again, we know this immediately upon receiving his sight, his real motives come out, and immediately, it says, he began to follow. That's what he wanted above all else. You see, if Jesus, what if Jesus was asking you the question, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? What would your answer be? James gives us some insight into this. James, the brother of Jesus. James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, when he he says, you know, you have not because you ask not. That's one problem. And then he says, you do not have because when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. Literally means you ask to fulfill your own passions. This man was not asking Jesus on this day for his sight to fulfill his own passions. No, his motive was he wanted to see the Savior, so he could follow him. 
So what if Jesus is asking you right now, what if he's saying, what do you want me to do for you? Let me put it another way. Where are you sitting right now feeling stuck? What are you hearing right now? Are you inquiring right now? Are you crying out right now? Are you willing to draw near to him? That comes with a promise. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. How do you answer that question? And is the heartbeat of your life, you want him? I think God loves answering those kinds of prayers. We pray a lot of prayers. And to be honest with you, I don't know why he does not answer a lot of them that we pray. But what I know is that on this day, this man, he wanted to see Jesus. And what I know about God is that he loves making a way for us to see Jesus. And my prayer is that that would be our prayer. That we would say above all else, Lord, above seeing colors and the sun and the moon and stars, even those around us, may we see Jesus. What would it be if we pray that kind of prayer? Would you pray it with me? Let's pray. Father, would you... Give us a desire above all desires to see Jesus. We sit here, and Lord, we maybe sit here spiritually blind. Or maybe we're not spiritually blind. Maybe we've got blinders on. Maybe we've put those blinders on with trivial, temporal things have blocked us from seeing. Lord, would you give us a desire to see Jesus above all else and above all others. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful and matchless name. And everybody said, 